Welcome back to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where our guests will discuss important health-related questions from an authentically Catholic perspective. Here on Dr. Doctor, we aim to be a trustworthy source of medical information for Catholics and for everyone else. We are upholding the principles of the Catholic faith and the science of practice in medicine as members of the Catholic Medical Association. Today, our guest uh, in the second and third segments of the show will be the Guild Chaplain for the Indianapolis, Indiana Catholic Medical Guild, Father Ryan McCarthy. We'll discuss the topic of embryo adoption that's become so important because of the use of in vitro fertilization that produces so-called extra very young human beings that are then frozen in a state of suspended animation. But before we get to that uh, important topic, we're going to look at some medical news. Tom, what's the news you've got for us tonight? <clears throat> news, you know, I've noticed I've <clears throat> had a several articles on sleep. I don't know why. I tend to get enough sleep, but I find that if people don't get enough sleep, it's really not good for them or anybody around them. So uh, we have a new study from Sweden, one of those Scandinavian countries, where you'd think in the winter they sleep a lot because it's dark so early in the day. Uh, or so early in the evening. And they looked at people ages 65 and under who slept less than five hours a night and found out that they had a 65% higher risk of death during a 13-year study period. Sorry, Tom, I nodded off there for just a second. Maybe you could go through that again. Five hours or less. That sounds like most of the OBGYNs I know. That's not good. That's right. I mean, how many old OBGYNs do you know? Just myself included. <laughs> Old being over 65. Oh, good. You're, I don't know you're not there. You don't know any. Uh, so those who got at least six or seven hours of night, they did not have that increased risk of death. But here's the interesting take-home point in that. If they only got five hours a night or less during the five weeknights, but they made up for it on the weekend so that their average was pushed to over six to seven hours a night, they did not have a higher risk of death. So I've heard it said in the past that you you can't make up for lost sleep. At least this uh, research study would suggest that you can. Yes, on the weekends. And it suggests, I think, why we need that time to get away and sort of recharge our batteries. Uh, but it's not easy to do. We're a busy, busy people, aren't we? Uh, unfortunately, yes. We think busyness means importance or right. meaning. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Father Mike Schmitz on uh, on YouTube. I yes. listen to him every day at lunch. And he recently did uh, a little spiel on sleep. And he talks about a bedtime as an act of faith. Yes. So I'm going to bed, Lord, at 1030, even though I should stay up until 1230. But after all, you're in charge of my life, so I'm going to rest and let you be in charge tomorrow. Well, it's like the old uh, childhood prayer at bedtime. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Right. It is an act of faith. It is an act of faith. It's saying you're in charge, not me. And it turns out from this study, it's also really good for you. Yeah. And it was a big study. 38,000 adults followed for 13 years. And again, just like another study I talked about on a previous episode, that those who slept more than eight hours a night also had an increased mortality rate versus those who slept less than eight hours a night, but still uh, six or more hours a night. Fascinating. Uh, And they're not sure if the relationship is the sleep itself or if there's a problem that leads to that extra sleep. That is not clear yet. And then I have another one that actually is related to your area. So this, this is a great segue kind of thing. And that is news about the U.S. birth rate. Oh, I thought you were going to say something about me being old and something else that you've studied. No. You're, you're not old. You're actually younger than I am, Chris. So, Excellent. Yes. And you know what the definition of old is? It's the oldest person in the room. It's <laughs> 15 years older than you are. That's what I've always heard. So it's always a moving target. So, so with that, we never get old, except to those around us, like our children. <laughs> well, speaking of youth and vitality, talk to us about the birth rate. The birth rate is the lowest it's ever been in the United States. So in 2017, about 3.8 million babies were born in the United States, which is 2% lower than the year before and the lowest recorded absolute number of births in 30 years, which is amazing because the number of women 
that potentially could have births is much, much higher than it was 30 years ago. So there were about 60 births per thousand women in the you know so-called childbearing ages of 15 to 44, which is 3% lower than 2016, and the lowest recorded rate of birth since the government started tracking birth rates in 1909. You know, I think, Tom, it's important to point out this study is talking about birth rate. It's not talking about fertility rates which are different things altogether. It's another fascinating discussion. But this is saying actual babies born to Americans going down uh, at an alarming rate. And it's such that, you know, for a number of years now, we have been below replacement rate for our population. It's always been remarkable to me that people think the economy must keep growing. But why must the economy grow if the number of people are not growing? So the only thing keeping our country growing right now is... Immigration. Interestingly, given all that's going on given in our national debates, isn't it? And yet, economically, for those who are you know, concerned about that, if there are less people, the economy cannot continue to grow. It doesn't make sense. Although there was an increase in birth rate in one group of women. Which group was that? Those over the age of 40. That's fascinating. I certainly see that in my practice. Uh, I see compared to 10, 15 years ago, uh, a remarkably much higher number of women post 40 that are having, in some cases, their very first child, but in other cases, many children. If you just tuned in, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we are shifting now from medical news of the day to Chris's healthcare tip of the day. Well, today we're going to talk about two things that are near and dear to my heart. Well, one thing, pregnancy (laughs) and weight gain in pregnancy. Uh, Fewer things strike fear into the heart uh, of women and uh, their husbands than a discussion of weight gain in pregnancy. <laughs> wait, wait. Women and their husbands actually talk about this together not at if the same hu- time? Not if their husbands are smart, they don't talk about that. That's right. Or if their husbands are in the same room. Exactly. <laughs> but there's so much folklore and so much urban legend about weight gain that is very, very cultural. I mean, to begin with, in America, or in the West, we should say, we really love fat pregnant women. Do we? We love fat babies. And <laughs> How do fat we know pregnant. this? <laughs> well, if you look at the images, not not nearly as much in the last few years, but especially if you look through the 70s, 80s, images of pregnant women in popular media, they like them to be on the couch and eating. They don't, <laughs> they don't like them to go to Zumba class and be fit. I did not know this. <laughs> it is a very cultural thing. But the, the latest weight gain in pregnancy guidelines were released from the Institute of Medicine in 1990. So fortunately in 2009, which now sounds pretty old, uh, they updated them a bit. Uh, but the information really hasn't changed that much. What's changed is reference to something we've talked about on our show before, and that is the body mass index or the BMI. And referencing the BMI uh, instead of absolute weight gain or not, which allows it to correct for height, essentially. Interesting. But as you become pregnant, there's no way for the BMI to go down because your height doesn't change. No, your height doesn't generally change. (laughs) But we've certainly known people to say, well, I'm not overweight. If I were just seven feet tall, I'd be perfect. (laughs) Exactly. Right. So the, the new guidelines, as we say, look to, uh, to give advice uh, because managing weight gain in pregnancy can reduce a lot of complications such as gestational diabetes and really even the need uh, for a C-section. But let's look at a couple of facts, not urban legend, but facts about weight gain in pregnancy. Give us some true facts, Chris. It's based on BMI. So that you can go to, if you just type BMI in your search window, you'll get a little calculator where you type in your height and your weight. It'll tell you your BMI. But for the purposes of this discussion, let's just assume the woman is five foot eight inches. That's a solid two inches taller than I. But <laughs> let's assume the woman is five foot eight inches. If she weighs 120 pounds, her BMI is 18.2. That's considered average. What? Um, that's average weight before average? pregnancy. If she were At five eight. Yes. Wow. If she were five eight and weighed 150 pounds, that's 22.8. That's still in the average range. If she weighed 170 pounds, that's 25.8, and that's overweight. So that lets our listeners sort of picture, okay, 5'8", and this sort of number. So for women of what's considered average weight before pregnancy, that is to say a BMI between 18.5 and 25. Yes. So you have to do that calculation to figure out if your average weight their recommendation is 25 to 35 pounds of total weight gain in pregnancy. Okay. And, you know, what I remember back when my wife was having babies was 30 pounds was kind of 
norm. It's a fair number. Now, for those women who are underweight pre-pregnancy, that is their BMI is less than 18.5. So that would be the five foot eight person who weighs 120 or less. Um, Their recommendation is 28 to 40 pounds. So a few more pounds recommended. Uh, And then, of course, we have to do the other extreme. For women considered overweight, Mm. and sorry, but that's a BMI of greater than 25, uh, that would be 5'8", 170 pounds. Uh, That recommendation is 15 to 25 pounds of weight gain. So really about 11 to 35-ish pounds uh, for anyone, whether they're underweight or overweight at pregnancy. Now, how do they control this? Because I understand, like, during the first trimester, you feel like you're climbing mountains every day and you're ravenously hungry. Yeah, that's a good question. I've I've never had that feeling because I've never been pregnant, but I've sure been hungry before and not uh, not been very good at controlling it. You know, it's interesting. I always tell pregnant women, pay the price at the beginning of pregnancy because it'll pay off at the end of pregnancy because it's going to be tough at the end. Um, if you're using exercise as part of your weight management, that's going to be a harder tool to call on later in the pregnancy. So pay the price and be strict at the beginning so that you'll reap the rewards, uh, rewards at the end. Uh, But the right nutrition, obviously, is key. And it's interesting, there's even some calorie intake recommendations for uh, of normal weight women, about 1,800 calories a day in the first trimester. That's a pretty strict diet, 1,800 calories a day. Yes, it is. That's about three bites of a big cheeseburger. (laughs) Uh, 2,200 calories a day in the second trimester and as high as 2,400 calories a day in the third trimester. Now, if you want to really depress yourself, look at the caloric component of, you know, a fast food cheeseburger. It's scary. You could do that very, very quickly. Yes, you could. So it's one of those cases where less is more. I personally tell patients, however much you think you should gain, you should probably gain less. You know, (laughs) arguably labor is the most demanding athletic event you'll ever ask of your body. And you wouldn't train for the Indy Marathon by gaining 100 pounds. You could. It would be an ugly marathon. (laughs) Ugly. (laughs) As will be your labor if you train for it by gaining 100 pounds. So I usually say de-emphasize the number, um, but shoot for less. Wonderful practical advice. And before we go to our break, I'll pose our medical trivia question for this day. You know, when I moved to Indiana, I encountered a number of neighborhoods full of villas. And I always thought a villa was a large, expensive house that you'd find in the countryside or, or on a seacoast like the Mediterranean in France or Italy that was used as a retreat. Or Indiana, for that matter. Yes. Yes, Chris. <laughs> yes. And I, but the plural of villa is, is villas. And in northeast Indiana, villa is a small home you can purchase, but where someone else takes care of all the yard work, snow plowing, and upkeep. So what the heck does this have to do with anatomy, biology, or medicine? Well, there are no villas in the human body, but there's something that sounds like there are, and those are villi. Well, where are villi found, and what do they do? You'll have to wait till the end of the show to find out, and we'll be back with more Dr. Doctor after the break. We're back with our second segment of Dr. Doctor tonight, and we have a a special interview that Chris Stroud helped us arrange. Oh, it's been my pleasure. You know, our guest tonight is Father uh, McCarthy from Holy Rosary Catholic Church, uh, way down south Indiana in Indianapolis. Uh, And Father McCarthy, we're so fortunate to have him with us tonight. Trying to read through his accomplishments takes way too long, uh, and we'll spend our whole show reading about him. He was ordained in 2001 in Indianapolis, did some undergraduate work at a place nearby called Wabash College. Then he went on to Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., Uh, Later did some graduate work at the Dominican House of Studies there in Washington. And then he went to Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas in a village in Italy called Rome. Been there, done that. Yeah, me too. It's a a nice place. (laughs) As I said earlier, he's the pastor at Holy Rosary Catholic Parish and the chaplain of the Anglican Ordinariate Community at St. Joseph of Arimathea. And more relevant probably to us, he's the chaplain of the Indianapolis Guild of the Catholic Medical Association. Uh, His his, uh, reason for really joining us tonight is to talk about this unusual topic, embryo adoption. And wouldn't you know, he has published uh, What to Do with the Least of Our Brothers, Finding Moral Solutions to the Problem of Endangered Embryos. So, Father McCarthy, thank you so much and welcome to Dr. Doctor. 
You're welcome. I'm glad to be on. We're so happy to have you with us. You know, I know some of our listeners are wondering, what in the world are these guys talking about embryo adoption? Maybe we could start by you explaining, what exactly is this? Well, it's a little complicated because legally, in most places, the embryo isn't considered a person. And so what we're talking about from a kind of a secular law perspective is almost ownership of the embryo um, rather than adoption. But obviously, we as Catholics believe an embryo is to be afforded all the rights of a human person. And so we believe who has or has the rights of possession, the rights of property over the embryo is not the owner, but its parents. Can you tell our listeners where the embryos are coming from? They may not uh, understand that. Okay. So there's a process called in vitro fertilization, commonly referred to as IVF. And as part of the IVF process, they found it over time easier to take multiple ovums from a woman at the same time and fertilize many and produce a large number of embryos from those fertilized ova. And then they take those over and they store them, they freeze them until it's a convenient time to implant them in a woman. And sometimes they go through all of the the fertilized ovum, the new embryos that they have frozen, and sometimes they don't, and then they just usually stay in frozen storage. There is no technical record on how many are stored. So I've seen estimates as low as, if you want to call it low, as 60,000 in the U.S., and as high as a million. So a lot of discrepancy in how many are actually kept because there's no legal requirement for fertility clinics to report how many embryos they have in storage. And we certainly read uh, during the, the recent hurricane, I think it was in Puerto Rico, that there were thousands of embryos lost with the power outages. Yeah, they had the power outages in in order to preserve these embryos, they're cryopreserved. Actually, more technically, they're kind of freeze-dried. They're dehydrated and then frozen to keep ice crystals from forming and destroying their cellular structure. Mm-hmm. Kind of Star Wars-esque in that sense. <laughs> and, yes. Uh, so obviously, it, if you lose power, they thaw, and if they thaw in an environment other than a mother's womb, then they have no way of thriving and they just die. So it may, I suppose to some of our listeners, it goes without saying, but why would uh, a priest like yourself do graduate work studying this? Why is the church interested in frozen embryos? Well, if you look at the Second Vatican Council documents, we have a teaching that there's a universal salvific will from God, that God desires all of us to be saved. And the normal path for salvation for human beings is through baptism and being brought up in a family and living your life and then dying and going to heaven. And we believe that every human being has a right to pursue that. And so these frozen embryos are being denied kind of that most fundamental basic human right. They're kind of alive in a suspended animation, but they're certainly being being denied any possibility to thrive and also any possibility towards a path of baptism and salvation in the normal path that we would consider yeah. that possible. So would the church say that every new human being has the right to come into existence through the loving act that we would call the marital embrace between a, a husband and a wife? So the church teaches pretty much just what you said, that the right and proper way for a human being to come into existence is through procreation and the way that God designed procreation is that two people, husband and wife, come together in a committed relationship, and in that relationship perform an act of love, sexual intercourse, and as a result of that act of love, they place their gametes in proximity to one another, the sperm <laughs> and the egg, and hopefully the sperm and the egg come together, and they produce a child, and God provides the soul. So all the frozen embryos, or freeze-dried embryos we're talking about, were created in a laboratory. None of them were created in the normal fashion. Is that correct? I mean, it would theoretically be possible to get one some other way, but I have never heard of being done. So I think it's pretty solid to say that they're all were created as an act of IVF and in a laboratory and then frozen from there. So as we think about the couple considering embryo adoption and if uh, if they're Catholics and they're trying to live their faith, what are the ethical issues that they need to consider? The Probably the biggest ethical issue is the church has come down pretty hard against surrogacy. 
And uh, from the outside, sometimes embryo adoption can look like surrogate motherhood. And surrogate motherhood is when one mother gestates a child for another mother and then turns that child over to the other mother after it's born. And so it can feel a lot like surrogacy because the woman who is bearing the child and taking the child in her own womb is not the provider of the gamete. <laughs> the words mother and father start to break down a little yes, bit. Yes, it gets complicated. It does. So she didn't provide the egg. So she's not biologically in that way related to the child. And so it has a, a certain feel of surrogacy, but part of surrogacy by nature is that it's disposed towards giving up that child to somebody else. And so what you have in most situations is kind of a child has certain rights to be conceived of, an act of love born into a loving family with a father and a mother, raised in that same family. And what you see in IVF is, and oftentimes things that follow IVF is the tearing apart of those relationships that a child has a right to. So instead of one mother, a child can end up with two or three or four different mothers and those relationships are then not continued but severed. And so there's this disruption for the child in what it has a right to, which is an intact relationship with its parents. If you just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where today we're talking to Father Ryan McCarthy, who did his doctoral dissertation on embryo adoption, those frozen embryos left over from in vitro fertilization. Father Ryan, is it tr- or Father McCarthy, is it true that uh, the church has not yet ruled on the ethics of embryo adoption? Correct. They've approached the question a couple times, and then they've backed down from it. And that's because it's a pretty complicated question, and you have to do a lot of things wrong to get to the place where you're looking at the possibility of embryo adoption. And the church sometimes finds it difficult to look at the best way back from a, a path of a lot of bad decisions. That's a good so, way to put it. Uh, when they're looking at the case of embryo adoption, they have concerns about um, participation in evil because it was some evil acts that took place in order to bring this situation about. And so they don't want couples who are looking to adopt and bring an embryo into the world to be participating in those acts that created the embryo outside of the act of love. Um, and the technical word is in the moral theology is formal cooperation, which means that the couple would have intended the IVF to occur as well. They're also concerned with scandal, because obviously when you're working with the people who created these embryos outside of the marital act, and you're also providing them with funds in order to get them out of a frozen state and implanted, there's some scandal as well as cooperation involved. And then some moral theologians are afraid that uh, it's replacing the marital act altogether, although I think that argument breaks down pretty easily, but some would argue that it's simulating conjugal relations. But, it, I mean, the technicalities of implanting an embryo and conjugal relations are so separate that I don't think anyone would mistake one for the other. Yeah, that's really fascinating. As you know, I'm an obstetrician-gynecologist, and most of my work is done with uh, with fertility, and many, many of my patients have said no to IVF because of the church's ethical teaching, and rightfully so. But then they find themselves struggling uh, to even think about embryo adoption if they're not becoming pregnant, um, because it does get so complicated so quickly, doesn't it? It does. It's uh, it's very complicated. And even the path towards adoption is very difficult because it's hard to establish paternity and maternity over the child. So I think Tennessee, last I looked, and it's been a couple of years, Tennessee actually has a path for this to occur legally. And they were the only state that had a path built in legally for this to occur, where you can and the way they did it to allow for the fact that the embryo can't be considered a human person was that you could pre-adopt an embryo and then then it was automatically verified by the courts as soon as the child was born. So you could kind of pre-adopt an embryo, but they wouldn't have certified it as an adoption until the time of the birth, and the birth mother then became automatically the mother of the child. It's almost comical, isn't it, sitting back at a distance and watching the secular world to, try to struggle with this idea, is this a human or is this property? And in watching the struggle, it, it, it beautifully <laughs> displays that humans are not property, and that's a problem, isn't it? <laughs> it is, and it's one that I think as time goes on, 
you're going to continue to see struggles with. And I think, sadly, we're getting to the point in our culture where it seems some people are willing to accept that they are persons or some sort of persons, but then trample their rights anyways. Wow. Um, that's well, that's well, almost more disturbing, isn't it? But that's it what is. many people do with abortion. They admit that it's a, a young human child that doesn't have the right to life. Or at least not the yep. same. Yeah. <clears throat> so you listed some arguments um, against embryo adoption. What would be some ethical arguments in favor of embryo adoption? I think the, from my perspective, the most powerful argument in favor of embryo adoption is kind of one of justice, so that what the child has been deprived of and what has occurred to the child is that its proper relationships with a mother and a father have been disassembled, uh, destroyed, or ripped apart by the whole process of IVF and being frozen in uh, uh, liquid nitrogen and all the procedures that have taken place and then sometimes abandoned by those parents, that what the church is trying to do, and if she were to allow officially for embryo adoption, is allow a restoration of those relationships and those rights to the child. And so rather than continuing the process of ripping things apart by a mother and a father accepting as their own child this frozen embryo, they have started to restore those relationships. And by a woman who has accepted, adopted this embryo, allowing the embryo to be implanted in her uterus, she's providing the same love and care that any mother would provide to her child at that state in life. And so I think if one thinks about the child has been deprived of these things and we're trying to restore these things, and it's about the child's rights, I think it becomes, at least from my arguments (laughs) and my dissertation in my book, I think it becomes evident that this becomes a healing and restorative process of justice, and it doesn't further rip apart those relationships as the other procedures do. I think that argument would resonate well um, with many people, because many people lead with their hearts and their feelings, and of of course you want justice done. Well, we're going to take a short break and be back with more of Father Ryan McCarthy on Dr. Doctor. We're back with the second half of our interview on Dr. Doctor with Father Ryan McCarthy, who did his doctoral dissertation on frozen embryos. You just talked, Father, about uh, an argument in favor of embryo adoption that is based on uh, the virtue of justice to restore to the child rights that have been ripped away by the act of in vitro fertilization. Now, in some of the arguments for and against embryo adoption being ethical, it's based on what the definition of procreation is. For instance, in certain church teachings, it says that procreation ends when the gametes join. Others would say that procreation ends with the birth of the child. How do you understand the the concept of procreation, and is it relevant to this dialogue? I think it's only partially relative. I mean, what the church teaches is that marital relations uh, are by nature ordered to the procreation and education of children. Right. I think when you're talking about the joining of gametes, if you're going to argue that at that point in time you have a human person and they have an eternal soul, then I think it's hard to argue that the act of procreation isn't complete and done. Um, And then everything after that is education, if you think of education in the wider sense of education. And I think the church would look at education in the wider sense of education and not strictly math and English in this situation, because you can think of people who have severely brain-injured children who are born who are almost incapable of any sort of education, but you wouldn't say that when they care for their child that their child is not being educated, led towards the good. It's just a more primitive sense of led toward the good. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, listening to you describe this this concept of justice and and a restoration of justice, it, it, it conjured in my mind the idea of uh, a child produced via sexual assault and that the circumstances leading to the child's production were not the loving act, uh, merely the meeting of gametes, really, uh, as we say. But yet we would adopt that child into a family and really not think much, probably, of uh, ethical principles. That analogy may be a bit of a stretch, but is it a similar concept? It is a similar concept. What some people struggle with, and it is a little bit hard, is that how seriously do we take adoption is 
our adoptive parents real parents? Hmm. And I would argue that an adopted mother and adopted father is certainly the child's mother and father. Hmm. They're the ones who are given responsibility for and taking responsibility for the care of this child, and they're the ones who are stepping in and saying, I'm going to do my best to raise this child up, education this child, and bring this child to a place where they can get to heaven. And so in every way that is most important, they are the mother and father of a child. But there's a a little bit in English-speaking world of prejudice against uh, adoption, probably because in common law, which is the root of English law, in common law, adoption wasn't actually allowed for. There was no such thing as adoption. It's interesting, as the as the father of two adopted children from Africa, uh, in Africa, culturally, adoption is, is doesn't exist. Uh, you know, you would never take a stranger to raise a child. A family member raises a child. Uh, and so this idea of adoption in, in that part of African culture, it's really sort of a big void. Yeah, and I think culturally you do have differences. In English common law, it didn't exist because it would confuse the rights of inheritance. So if you adopted a child who had the right to inherit, so they just basically said there's no such thing as adoption. But in the theology of the church, the idea and concept of adoption is something that's deep in Scripture, particularly about how we become sons and daughters of God by divine adoption. And so certainly theologically the Catholic Church would look at adoption as a real relationship and a strong one. In fact, for us as human beings who are not born the Son of God, the most important relationship we have is that adoptive relationship. That's fascinating. You know, I think something I've heard patients tell me a lot regarding IVF-produced children in their families. So I'll have a Catholic couple that is trying hard to live the faith, and maybe they have relatives that have uh, had children via IVF, and the relatives have accused the Catholic couple of not loving those children because they disagree with the way they were produced. Um, that, that's tricky, but I, I think it's relevant here in that these embryos, like IVF children, are sons and daughters adopted of God, aren't they? Well, <laughs> it, it would be a fine point of theology, but that's certainly what we would desire to see them become. As I mean, we believe that happens with baptism. So that's when the divine adoption takes place, which is one of the reasons why the Church would have such an interest in frozen embryo adoption, because although we can hope that babies who are produced in this manner and who would pass from this life to the next, whatever that looks like from the strange frozen state that they're in, I mean, you know, you almost think of them as dead, but then, of course, they are brought back to life again, um, resuscitated, as it were. It is because we believe that we have to do everything we can to bring about the salvation of their souls. And we can't presume that God will save them just because we want that to happen. Mm. Father, if embryo adoption is declared to be ethical by the Catholic Church, what do you think will or should happen next? I think you'd have to be very careful because there is the scandal that is involved and the cooperation that could occur and uh, the slippery slope you can do- go down pretty quickly would have to be very carefully guarded against. Because if, well, particularly Dr. Stroud, who's you're an OBGYN, you know what couples are like who are struggling with infertility. Certainly. They can become desperate to do anything to obtain that child, which is not the right way of thinking, but it's just the reality of how much that is a kind of a natural draw. Sure. Um that couples could start encouraging or, in fact, formally participating in IVF in order to have a child to adopt. And there's a significant difference between artificial insemination, between invertible fertilization, between um, what's called heterologous in vitro fertilization, so taking somebody else's egg and sperm to use for your own sake. And what we're talking about here, which is two people who don't participate in the illicit production of a frozen embryo and yet want to rescue that frozen embryo and bring it back into its normal state, which is a mother's womb, and nurture it and educate it as it has its right. So there's there starts to be a thin line if the church comes out in favor of it where you could have this rush of people who are, now I have a path to motherhood, now I have a path, path to fatherhood, and start kind of losing some of the nuance and the the crimes that are being committed, and I think the rape is a good example here, 
you know, the crimes that are being committed in order to make that possible. So, you know, rape is a very good example because no one would want a woman to get raped in order for them to have a child to adopt. Sure, exactly. And likewise, the same attitude would have to be present in adopted parents. You would never want a child to be produced by IVF in order to have that child to adopt. Oh, interesting. Now, I mean, if we assume that the status quo is not the long-term plan, what if uh, the other uh, option occurs? What if the church comes out and says, this is immoral, you cannot participate in embryo adoption? How would we as a society work ourselves through that? Well, I would be very busy writing some retractions from the book I wrote. A good priest. On, on a very personal note, um, <laughs> Uh, secondly, I, I think it's a really a real difficult path because there's no great answer. Um, because we do believe as a church that baptism is necessary for salvation. That doesn't mean that God can't save people by extraordinary means, but we're not allowed to presume that God's going to save someone. Um, so we believe that baptism is the only means of salvation that we can be assured of on our side of things. And so we have to act accordingly from our side. And it would seem that baptism is not possible for these frozen embryos because to attempt to baptize them is to destroy them. Um, from everything I've read about, and this is probably more in your department, Dr. Stroud, than my department, but that in order to expose them, to water in order to baptize them in the tiny state that they're at, you're actually going to destroy their cellular structure and you couldn't actually achieve the baptism before you killed the child. So you have these young embryos, these frozen children that are in this ridiculous state, and that's what the church actually refers to it as, as a, uh, you know, I can't remember the exact wording in the last document, but an absurd state or ridiculous state where you, you can't if there's no path through adoption, there does not seem to be a path to allow them to live, nor does there seem a licit way in order to allow them to Salvation. die. It's interesting. I think about now blessed, soon to be Saint Pope Paul VI yes. and his writings, this very issue and that children can't become, they can't become property with a quality management process. Yeah, and, and one of the difficulties is we are so brilliant and smart scientifically that, you know, there used to be a thought that there was a shelf life on these frozen embryos, and they've actually gotten so good at storage techniques that now they think there is no shelf life on these embryos. So literally, they could be frozen forever uh, in suspended animation. See, Father, in thinking about this, I thought that the baptism and thawing them at the same time would be the solution. The solution. Yeah. But... Uh, it turns out it's even more complicated than that. So, Father, we're into the last minute. Are there any resources you would recommend that our listeners go to if they want to delve more deeply into this subject? So, as far as I know, the only book published on it is my book. Right. <laughs> so, and where can, can that be purchased? <laughs> I can I can shamelessly promote it. Amazon.com. Um, it's produced by St. Benedict Press. You can also contact St. Benedict Press directly. And um, it's called? And, what to do with the least of our brothers, finding moral solutions to the problem of endangered embryos. Um, it's available as a Kindle book, and it is published as a softback. I don't know. Sometimes it's harder to find that way, but the Kindle's relatively easy to find. Uh, there's a couple church documents on this that you can read. They're going to end, I can tell you the short stories, they're going to end with an ambiguous opinion on it. Um, <laughs> sure. The last one is Dignitatis Personae, and it's kind of hopelessly ambiguous, but at least you can see some of the arguments in it. Well, Father, it's been terrific listening to you help us understand a, a very complicated emotional uh, topic with with so many different aspects to it that really have the potential to affect so many uh, of our listeners. We appreciate your time and appreciate your work and appreciate your ministry. Oh, I'm happy to and uh, could you, uh, have the opportunity to discuss the topic. And Could you grant uh, a radio blessing to our listeners? Sure. As much as I'm possible, may Almighty God bless and keep you the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen indeed. Thank you, Father. You're welcome. We are back for the fourth and final segment of this episode of Dr. Doctor. And first, we have the answer to the trivia question I posted earlier. And that is, while there are no villas in the human body where we can relax, there are villi. Where are villi found and what do they do? 
do enlighten us. It's so titillating. Really? I didn't think so, but hey, I'm not an OB-GYN doctor. The villa, not you, the villa. Oh, I'd love a villa. But uh, the villi are found in the intestines, and one villi is a villus. And uh, the villi are actually important to something that's going on uh, culturally right now with the way we eat. Mm. Mm. And, in fact, we have a guest on a later show that we will tape dealing with gluten sensitivity. So there is a disease known as celiac disease or sprue in which the villi flatten out. Villi are little finger-like protection projections in your intestines, and each villus actually has microvilli, so it radically increases the surface area of your intestines to absorb all those good nutrients that you get in your food. But what happens in celiac disease and some other diseases is that they flatten out. And if the villi flatten out, there's less surface area to absorb food, and more food goes through the intestines and out your bottom. So the villi are very important to being healthy. And we'll learn more about gluten and gluten sensitivity and how important that is on a later show. But more important than gluten and villi, we have a guest (laughs) for an episode of what we are calling the Lineker for the laity. The Lineker Quarterly is the uh, Medical Moral Journal of the Catholic Medical Association. And today we have with us the very high energy uh, and incredible Dr. Natalie Rodden. Welcome, Natalie. Hi, it's great to be here. By the miracle of digital technology and radio waves. <laughs> uh, Natalie resides now in Denver. She's a, a Notre Dame graduate, and she also studied at that small uh, medical facility in southeast uh, Minnesota where I also went to medical school called the University of Southern Minnesota. Yes, or otherwise known <laughs> as the, the Mayo Clinic. And Natalie is a palliative care physician, which she'll explain. But first of all, she wrote an editorial in the August 2018 issue of the Lineker Quarterly. Why did you write this editorial, and why do you think non-medical people, that is our listeners, would be interested in it? Great. Well, I wanted to provide uh, an opportunity to share what I do as a palliative care physician because I think a lot of people don't really understand uh, or haven't really heard about much of palliative care and and what it does and how, as Catholics, palliative care is a beautiful way um, to care for those who are nearing the end of life, who have chronic or serious illness, and it's um, so much of what I do is, is is very tied to faith and spirituality and uh, very consistent with the Catholic teaching. You mean in medicine, something that's still tied (laughs) to faith, even in our our secular society? Is that something you found in your training? Yes. Actually, my my research and my fellowship was on spirituality um, and addressing that as physicians uh, for patients who are nearing the end of life and how important that is. And so um, palliative care... Um, means supportive care. Um, palliative comes from the word pallium, which means to cloak. Oh. And so I tell patients that when I um, see them or their, or their loved ones, I'm, I'm helping um, to provide a cloak of support for them as they uh, encounter this illness and, and their journey forward. Well, that's really and a beautiful, so, that's a beautiful image, though, the idea of wrapping them in something that provides comfort. That's really, that's a beautiful yes, image. Yes, and for our Catholic patients, uh, the Pope wears a pallium. So and, and archbishops. A picture. Yes. <laughs> Made out of lamb's so, wool. Well, it's it's a wonderful um, it's a wonderful way to care for patients and their families because we understand that serious illness doesn't just affect you physically, but it affects you emotionally and psychologically and spiritually too. And so, the palliative care model is is an interdisciplinary uh, team model. Uh, so I work as a physician with uh, chaplains and social workers and nurses, and oftentimes we get to sit with patients and families as a whole team and really work to understand how this illness is affecting each aspect of their life and how we can work to creatively reduce suffering in each of these aspects so that they can live the best life possible for as long as possible despite this medical illness that they have. So your concept of healing is not the same one we have 
when we think of curing. Is that right? Right, exactly. And so that was a big shift for me um, because I think like most physicians um, and most people who go to medical school that you know we want to fix and cure and and make everything better again and so I had to in learning about palliative care and in these patients who maybe can't be fixed or cured all the way um, the, how can I help them and how can I reduce suffering in their lives either through symptom management either through, through counseling and support either through our chaplaincy um, and and still make huge difference and, and helping them in their lives. And it's been truly beautiful for me. A lot of that is rooted in, for me in, uh, personally in my faith and in, in the Catholic understanding of suffering. And, and so it, it's been a very beautiful journey. Um, and every day I get the opportunity to sit and with patients and their families and, and get to, to learn about what's most important to them. What are their biggest values in their life? Um, what do they miss that they used to be able to do that this disease has robbed from them? And how can I try to get that back for them? Um, and and it's, it's a beautiful uh, model, I feel, of, of accompanying people and not abandoning them. Natalie, I think our culture um, stresses sometimes. In your editorial, you say that in the last year and a half, more and more people are asking you for, quote, the pill to say bye-bye, end quote. What would you like our listeners to know about how you respond? Uh, this is really hard for me that when patients ask about physician-assisted suicide, I, I, I practice in, in Colorado, a state where it is a legal thing now, physician-assisted suicide, and, and it's very sad for me because I feel that patients often don't know about palliative care, but from news and things, they know about physician-assisted suicide or euthanasia, and they don't realize that there's so much support out there to help them um, and help their families and, and realize the worth um, and realize there's so much good and growth that can still happen in their lives despite this illness. And so I, I will passionately uh, speak to a patient about, about how I want to help them and I'm not going and I'm going to help them in ways that are going to help them live and, and not and not help them prematurely in their life. Wow, that's really beautiful. I mean, as I listen to you, I think, you know, it's called, we're, we're, we're said to be health care professionals, but today too often the care is minimalized, isn't it? And listening to you describe right. your work, it sounds like it's, it's certainly the, you lead with the care component. It's really special that I get to do this. I, I'm a, I work in, in a hospital setting, and, and sometimes, you know, we're so rushed as physicians, but as, as palliative care uh, physicians in our team, we aren't limited so much by time, so I can spend um, you know, sometimes a couple hours of the patient and the family really working through these wow. um, difficult questions and, and conversations. And, um, and, and it's beautiful sometimes to see the changes that happen uh, when they realize the hope that is still there. Now, I've heard it survive. said, and tell me if you believe this is true, that when they ask that question that they want the pill to say bye-bye, what they're really asking for is to be loved and affirmed. Absolutely. Right. And I think there's so much of a fear and um, uncertainty and uh, distress that, that goes on when patients are having new diagnoses or worsening health. And, and honestly, that, that's a driver, um, th this loss of uh, these fears that people have that, that, that makes them think to go there to think to seek physician-assisted suicide, and to tell, and to telling them that this whole um, model of, of care is available for them, both in the hospital and then their services that are in the community, to continue to help them and their family's journey and live the best life possible um, is a huge relief, I think, oftentimes for people that didn't realize it was an option. You also talk in your uh, editorial that people are so focused on doing that they don't know how to, fo how to focus on being. How do you bring people to that point? Yeah, that's, that's a tough one because so much of our culture, I think, today is, um, is it's life's about what you can give or produce. Um, and, and, and so if you have an, an, an illness where you can't work anymore or you can't um, provide some service to others that, uh, in, a, in a sort of tangible way that now this illness has robbed you doing that you don't have worth anymore and and so I, I help people every day to figure out um, and to discover the, the intrinsic worth that they have and the dignity just of, of being human and and sometimes I just tell them 
you made my life better just by knowing you hmm. and our team and just loving them um, and loving their families. And so one thing that we do as a team is that we give every one of our patients uh, a picture frame, a blank picture frame, and we ask them to bring in a photo, for the family to bring in a photo of, of how they would like to be seen by their medical team in the oh. hospital. Because oftentimes when they have tubes and, and, and they're hooked to machines or they're um, more debilitated, that's not really how they, who they are. And it, they, send, they put in a picture of them with a fish they caught or them in their <laughs> garden or with their grandchildren. And then that's what the nurses and doctors see. And it just creates this whole um, different element. Of, this is a person. This is not just um, a patient in a wow. bed. But Natalie, is, you know. Natalie I've, I've heard it said that Mother Teresa said often, may you have a good death. And I wonder in the, the really couple of minutes we have left, could you tell us uh, what, a, what is a good death? What does that look like to you? Yeah, um, and I've, as I worked with a lot of patients and families, I've seen deaths that definitely um, appear more, appear more good or, or not good. And I think when we've helped people prepare, uh, when there's a sense of peace, um, I tell a lot of patients and families we're hopeful for, for everything for the best, and um, but we need to prepare for the worst. And so it's important that we have these conversations, even if they're difficult, um, to help them prepare and 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 working with. Uh, them and their families on um, honoring them through this time and in helping to address distress they may have, especially, especially what we call existential distress or of a spiritual sort. You know, if there's people they need to reconcile with or reconciling with God, how can we work to, to delve into that to give them a peace so that they're ready? We view our work as being midwives for the soul. You know, we're helping them get to that. Well, that is really a, a beautiful image. Uh, thank you for that beautiful image, and thank you for the, the work that you do. I wish we had the rest of the the rest of the day we could talk to you. But uh, <laughs> no, thank you. so to our listeners, thanks for listening to another episode of Doctor Doctor. This is Doctor Tom McGovern, and I'm Doctor Chris Stroud signing off for now. Remember, the medical decisions that you make today could have long-term or eternal consequences. Choose wisely. Choose Catholic. <laughs>